78 years ago to this very day, on January 17, 1943, 267 people gathered in the auditorium of Queens College to form the church that would become Myers Park Baptist. In their first act as a congregation, they lifted their voices together in one accord to sing, The Church's One Foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. When our forebears set out to build a church that would be powerful and enduring, they knew it was imperative to begin first and foremost by laying a strong foundation. I imagine they were familiar with Jesus' teaching in Matthew 7, where he proclaimed, Everyone who hears my words and acts on them is like a wise person who built their house on a rock. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat the house, but it did not fall because it was founded on rock. And everyone who hears my words and does not act on them is like a fool who built their house on sand. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat the house, and great was its fall. As the famous hymn based on these words attest, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. Our founders knew the strong foundations are of paramount importance and that faulty foundations of sweet frames and sinking sand simply would not be sufficient to uphold and advance the grand dream they had of a different kind of church, liberated from the rigid dogmas of intolerance, denominational sectarianism, and fundamentalist barbarism that characterized so much of religion in the South. Why was it that Myers Park Baptist Church was organized and early history of the church asked? It was certainly not with the intent of providing a more convenient place to worship or to build a church at the expense of other congregations or to point with denominational pride at what we had done. The answer is found in divine revelation, which came to responsive hearts that some should go and create in the name of Christ a church that would meet the needs of the community as they had never been met before. We make bold to say the organization of this church took place because certain people became possessed of a dream. And in the fulfillment of that dream, there was the necessity for the re-examination of the work of the Christian church and the willingness to scrape from its hull whatever barnacles of the past might impede its progress. The dream our founders cast began with the establishment of a firm foundation, and over the last 78 years on that substructure, our laity and staff, through toil and labor, joys and struggles, have built an extraordinary community, brick by brick and person by person, a church with a bold and ambitious vision for inclusivity, community, spirituality, and justice. Today on this Founders Sunday, we honor our founders and forebears with the deepest gratitude we possess. We celebrate the proud legacy they passed down to us and recommit ourselves once more to the dream they cast 
to advance the mission of this church and to be good stewards of all that we have inherited to care for and nourish the people who make up our beautifully diverse family of faith and this grand sanctuary where God seeks to encounter us each Sunday, even in the midst of a global pandemic. The foundation our forebears laid was sturdy ground, or we would not be able to weather the storms we face as Americans and as Christians today, or engage in the vital ministries that we are able to offer the world. Today is a time of gratitude, but it is also a day for re-examination, for re-examining the work of the church and to muster up all the strength we have to scrape off the barnacles that have gathered on the hull of our great ship. In the year our church was founded, the city of Charlotte was deeply segregated. This segregation was not accidental, but by design. The consequence of oppressive policies of a white supremacist movement called the Redeemers at the turn of the century who ran for and were elected to political office on a white supremacist platform and then engaged in racial violence and race riots, stoking the flames of racial resentment and instituting Jim Crow laws to disenfranchise and humiliate black people. Laws that would not be fully removed in Charlotte until the 1971 Supreme Court decision of Swan v. Charlotte-Mecklenburg Board of Education, a case that helped us to become the most integrated public school system in America, but was later overturned in the 90s because of the complaints of a white father, and now today our public schools are more segregated than they were in 1971. What does it mean that Myers Park Baptist Church was founded in the middle of the Jim Crow South without an acknowledgement of apartheid by our founders? In our first worship service in 1943, the new congregation who gathered made a covenant to God and one another with the words of the New Hampshire Confession of Faith as adapted by the Southern Baptist Convention. They pledged to embrace the lordship of Christ, to walk together in love, and to seek divine aid to move carefully and watchfully through the world, denying ungodliness and every worldly lust. But they made no mention of the ungodliness of Jim Crow or the worldly lust of segregation. As our founders were making a covenant with God and one another, they were also sadly entering into another covenant at the very same time, a covenant with whiteness, as they chose to build our church in this exclusive all-white neighborhood with restrictive covenants that expressly forbid any property to be owned by black people. These restrictive covenants were written into the deed of every lot in Myers Park, including our church, with the words, no part of said real estate shall ever be owned or occupied by any person of the Negro race. Racist words that remain a scourge on every deed in Myers Park to this day, testifying to a terrible history. 
While our church was being founded in the middle of Jim Crow in the center of an exclusive all-white neighborhood, something else was being established in Charlotte. The Black Freedom Movement. Kelly Alexander Sr. was reactivating the Charlotte branch of the NAACP, and from his base here in the Black Queens City, Alexander would build the North Carolina State Chapter of the NAACP into the largest in the country, earning him the name Mr. NAACP. He helped launch projects like the Double V Campaign, which linked together in common cause the fight against fascism abroad and the fight against racism at home. He also launched a Votes for Freedom campaign that registered more than 5,000 new black voters. These powerful efforts and many more over the next 20 years would garner Alexander later in life with the horrifying honor of having his home on the west side of Charlotte, along with the homes of three other civil rights leaders, bombed by white supremacists in 1965. While our church was here establishing itself, worshiping in a new sanctuary by that time, on the other side of town, the black freedom movement was trying to be born and being attacked, struggling to get a firm foundation in our city. This stark comparison reminds me of a sermon our first senior minister, George Heaton, preached at the dedication of our sanctuary in 1951, where he asked the congregation, what will happen to our dream when we gather there to worship God, grouped in the shape of a cross by our very seating arrangement? Will that cross be the end of our dream? Or will it be the entrance into a resurrection of life and power for resistance to the world? This is the real test of faith, he said. What will happen to our faith when we worship in our new sanctuary? Will our fighting faith soften into the fatuous futility of those who worship in beauty and quiet, saying, the world is noisy, awful place, here in this sanctuary, it cannot touch me. Now I am safe. I can forget it all and be with my God. Or will we worship together and find the faith to say, it is a good thing to be alive in this era. The world is a poor place for cowards, but it is a great place for heroes. God is in the midst of this world, and we shall play a brave part in God's cosmic battle. Keaton proclaimed, I know the danger. This sanctuary must not become a place of hiding. It must be a hollowed place where heroes refresh themselves for the struggle. So I pray, he said, that our sanctuary will always lead us to fight for greater dreams. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus quoted Psalm 118 and said to the chief priests and the Pharisees in Jerusalem, Have you never read the scriptures? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. That was the Lord's doing, and it is amazing in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people that produces the fruits of the kingdom. The one who falls on this stone will be broken into pieces, and it will crush anyone on whom it falls. When he said this, the religious leaders realized he was speaking about them and they plotted to arrest him. What did Jesus mean by this cryptic yet incendiary statement? 
He was telling the chief priests and Pharisees that the very thing they were rejecting would become the cornerstone of God's work in the world. They were obviously rejecting Jesus' prophetic ministry at that time, so the early church would later say that Christ is the stone the builders rejected that has become the cornerstone of God's movement in the world. But Jesus, in this moment, was referring to the prophets who came before him who had preached justice. As he said later to the chief priests and Pharisees in Matthew 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous, and you say, If we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we would not have taken part with them in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. But you testify against yourselves, he said, you snakes and you brood of vipers. This year, the day our church was founded, falls exactly on Martin Luther King Jr. Sunday. The prophet who was rejected over and over again to the point of being executed. Every one of us, especially those of us of the more progressive persuasion, like to imagine, as the chief priests and scribes did, that we would not have taken part in rejecting Dr. King or resisting the black freedom movement for civil rights. But would we really? We may not have outright opposed it, but did we ignore it? What's the difference between Dr. King and Dr. Barber today? What's the difference between the black freedom movement of the 40s and 50s and 60s and the movement for black lives today? Are we so sure of ourselves? Are we so sure of our righteousness? Is it not possible? The reason we continually find ourselves facing the scourge of white supremacy, reborn in the form of law and order and police brutality, mass incarceration and wild disparities in every aspect of our society from health care to housing to employment and education, is it not possible that the reason we cannot seem to escape this menacing ghost that continues to haunt us anew in every generation is that our founders rejected the stone of the prophets? the stone of racial justice and equality. Is it not possible the foundations of all the institutions in American society are crumbling because they have rejected the stone that is Dr. King? Are we missing the cornerstone of our faith, of our society? The same year our church was founded, a white southern woman from Georgia named Lillian Smith wrote these haunting words. Is there a tendency to blindness in those who would overvalue their whiteness? If we were not blocked off by our racial feelings, would we not realize that segregationists are our country's most dangerous enemies? Do we not realize the threat they are to our survival as a strong free nation? For the sake of a mythic belief in the superiority of their whiteness, a strange, mad obsession, they are willing to drag us to the edge of destruction because they have completely lost touch with reality. Smith went on to write, 
Let us look at ourselves in humility and honesty. A white person in America was willing neither to give up Jesus nor to give up the slave. We were willing neither to give up our white conscience nor our way of love. Today we are still unwilling, with the result that in many areas of life we've given up our sanity instead. What a profound conflict it has created, a conflict that tears at the heart and minds of Americans, doing strange things to our culture and our personalities, sweeping through every level of life like a slow-spreading poison. Nothing is more important than for white Christians now to face themselves, to look into the mirror of Christ's teachings, and to see their image reflected there. We must learn that we are human beings, not white semi-gods, not strange exalted creatures above the rest of humankind, but just a part of God's family. We must face the great harm that we've done to our children by believing in white supremacy. We must face the great truth that something is deeply wrong with us, something is sick within our souls. Throughout our church's history, we have done extraordinary things as a congregation to promote racial justice. In the early 50s, we supported the organizing work of Anita Stroud. In the late 50s, Mount Olive Baptist Church was destroyed by fire, and when one of our members, C.D. Spangler, was made aware of this by his black friend, Fred Alexander, he donated the land across the street from West Charlotte High School for the building of their new sanctuary. The men of Myers Park even helped in the construction of that building with their own hands. In the early 60s, we integrated our congregation publicly stating that we welcome people of any race with the words open to all, closed to none. And we engaged in efforts to integrate Charlotte businesses. In the 70s, we funded the work of T.J. Reddy one of the Charlotte Three, and worked diligently to support the efforts to integrate public schools through forced busing. In the 80s, we partnered with black churches, had shares and swaps of choirs and preachers, had dinners with black families. In the 90s, we hired ministers with black children, and at the turn of the century, we began ordaining black clergy. In the second decade of the 21st century, we engaged in a year-long Awakening to Racial Injustice series, a pilgrimage through the Deep South with a partner black congregation. We wrote our first statement against racism toward African Americans. We hired our first black ministers in our history, and we started taking a very serious look at our own whiteness. We've done extraordinary things. And yet here we are, in the waning days of a white supremacist presidency, on the heels of a white race riot which successfully mounted an armed insurrection of the U.S. Capitol, living in a city that is more segregated than it was in the 1960s, with more segregated public schools than ever before, that is 50 out of 50 in economic mobility and last in the nation in interracial trust. Whatever we've been doing, as extraordinary as it may be, isn't working. Or at least, we must admit, it hasn't been enough. Some would say we need to redouble our efforts now. I would argue we need to be completely refounded. Refounded on the stone the builders rejected. Not the deed on which the restrictive covenant of whiteness was written, 
but the stone on which an open covenant with humanity is written, the stone on the prophets which demands the justice and equality are written, the stone that Christ, who centered the marginalized and ate with Gentiles and lifted up the Samaritan as the image of love, and regularly chastised the religious people who worshipped God but neglected the weightier matters of the law, the matters of justice and mercy. If we've learned anything after 75 years as a congregation, if we've learned anything after the terrible epiphany that will live in infamy on January 6th, let it be that we have come to understand once and for all that fighting for racial justice, fighting to rid the world of white supremacy, is the most important work we are called to do as Christians in America. Could it be that it is more than a coincidence that our anniversary as a church falls at the same time every year as the observance of Martin Luther King Jr.? Have we ever thought about that? Is that not serendipitous? Is there not a message for us in this fortuitous conjunction? Could we be, should we be refounded on Dr. King's legacy? It is not activism or politics to look at the sin and evil in one's own soul, in one's own history, in one's own society. It is deeply spiritual work and the ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are not called to it out of some paternalistic obligation to care for our neighbors, but for the sake of our own souls to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. So let no one tell us again that it is too divisive or too political or not the work of the church. Let this be the reckoning of all reckonings, that racial justice is not some side issue It is the most important work we will ever be called to as the followers of Jesus, and it must become the cornerstone of our faith. If we have any doubts, may we never forget Dr. King's words in his book, Where Do We Go From Here? Chaos or Community, which feels more apt today than ever. He wrote... Over the last few years, black people have felt that their most troublesome adversary was not the obvious bigot of the KKK or the John Birch Society, but the white liberal, who is more devoted to order than justice, who prefers tranquility to equality. The white liberal must see black people need not only love but justice. It is not enough to say, we love black people, we have many black friends. They must demand justice for black people. Love that does not satisfy justice is not love at all, King said. It is merely sentimental affection, little more than what one would offer to a pet. Love, at its best, is justice concretized. So the white liberal, King went on to say, must rid themselves of the notion that there can be a tensionless transition from the old order of injustice to the new order of justice. Black people have not gained a single right in America without persistent pressure and agitation, so the white liberal must 
escalate their support for racial justice rather than de-escalate it because the need for that commitment is greater today than ever before. Dr. King could have wrote those words yesterday. Truth be told, our founders are not alone. The true Christ of love and justice and equality and peace, as well as the true unsanitized Martin Luther King Jr., is always a stone that the builders of the world reject in every generation. We all reject it from time to time, if we are honest. Each and every one of us have those moments in our lives where our faith is founded on faulty frames and established on sinking sand. None of us are perfect. Not even Jesus, who once called a Canaanite woman a dog. We are all on a journey, wrestling our way through this world of beauty and brutality, struggling to ground ourselves and our children and our families and our lives on the right cornerstones. It's never easy, and progress often seems too little, too late, followed by the predictable backlash of white aggrievement. But we know the direction that we must travel, escalating our support for racial justice, demanding freedom and equality for black lives. And on that journey, we must stick together and hold on to hope and keep the faith, remembering that Christ is made the sure foundation, Christ the head and cornerstone, because it is on this stone, the stone of justice, And Vincent Harding reminded us, we are building up a new world. We are building up a new world on the stone of justice. We are building up a new world on the stone of freedom. We are building up a new world on the stone of equality, and builders must be strong. So have courage, sisters, and don't get weary. Have courage, brothers, and don't get weary. Have courage, people, and don't get weary, though the road be long, because we are building up a new world, and we builders must be strong. And all God's people said, amen.